I mean, the thing is to try to find a, mm, um, there's a kind of, uh, joy is a word, it's true, uh, a kind of, um, kind of almost spiritual fulfillment, I must say, in crafting something and making something work into maybe a piece of art, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, it's still a work of art. And like, that's what I do. It's what I do. And I'm curious about a lot of it. I'm curious how we're going to get there again. I have mm -hmm. no idea. Welcome back to the B-Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Kautzer, and we are on the second part of a two-part uh, discussion about Martin Scorsese as The Irishman. As you're listening to this, The Irishman has either prom just premiered on Netflix or it's been on Netflix for some time. Uh, and with me to continue the conversation and uh, continue this uh, this talk about Martin Scorsese is a uh, writer for film dispenser Scott Phillips Scott how are you doing hey man I'm good how are you I'm doing good I'm doing good this podcast has officially turned into trying to beat the runtime of the Irishman which I'm pretty sure we're gonna be able to do considering <laughs> I started to edit the first part and it's looking like yeah well we're gonna probably beat the Irishman um but uh, where we last left off, uh, guys, as you probably already know, because you've listened to the the other the first episode, is our top five Scorseses. And with that, we're actually going to get it right into it and talk about the um, the underrated Scorsese. Or we have three of uh, Scorsese's films that we've both chosen, and we've uh, chosen respectively. And we're going to talk about uh, about the uh, these particular films that we've like at least for my part the way that i chose my list and then i'll ask scott how he chose his list were films that are not in like any kind of social media atmosphere that people are actually talking about on a consistent basis i mean we all know you know goodfellas the wolf of wall street um uh recently more the king of comedy and taxi driver because of joker have been constantly they're constantly in the the conversation but these three i personally felt are not in the conversation and are worthy of talking about um especially uh, considering how large his particular filmography is so scott how did you choose your list yeah it, it was kind of a it was kind of a, a similar kind of process is uh, obviously staying away from the ones that are talked about so much, uh, and trying to come up with, you know, a, it's a great example of a certain type, uh, of work. Uh, that's very generic, but you'll see what I, I mean when I, I give you my picks. Uh, but you know that it's a great example of what it is, but it may not be exactly what people think of Martin Scorsese for. 
uh, would be uh, would be the way that I would put it. Although one of my choices, I think, uh, fits right in the the Scorsese oeuvre there, uh, but uh, is just one that for whatever reason, you know, didn't do much at the box office, kind of fell by the wayside uh, along the way. So uh, it's it, I think for me, it's just as simple as the ones that are 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 really good, but just lesser discussed that they just never seem to come up. Absolutely. Absolutely. So with that in mind, why don't we go ahead and go with your uh, we'll start with you with your number three choice. Yeah, uh, it is Martin Scorsese's installment in the anthology film of uh, New York stories. And uh, and that is uh, and I'm blanking on what is the name? Is it Life Lessons? Um, absolutely. It is. It is life lessons, um, (laughs) which is hilarious because that is also my number three guys. We've, we've (laughs) not really corned, uh, we've not really corned, uh, coordinated this. Just literally that's my number three. Um, yes, absolutely. It's, uh, life lessons, uh, written by Richard Price and directed by Martin Scorsese. Yeah, what a combination. Um, seriously. Mr. New York and Mr. New York Jr. <laughs> <laughs> um and just to tell a little bit of uh just to tell a little bit about this particular um uh, this particular story is about an artist and his muse and what happens to an artist and their muse when um they begin to go north and south. Uh the artist is played by in a in a role that I feel is indicative of his work in the 1980s, but again just forgotten. Uh, Nick Nolte playing yep. the um, the perfectly named Lionel Doby, uh, and then his muse Paulette played by um, a Scorsese muse for a bit because he directed her in um after hours that came literally right after this film uh rosanna arquette um as paulette uh, of course there are there are literally like hundreds of people in this film and a lot of small like um small cameos by people like there's uh steve buscemi in one of his first roles is in this peter gabriel plays himself um ilana douglas is in this movie debbie harry mm-hmm. Um, is in this movie um, it, a very very early Mark Boone Jr. Um, performance. If if you're, I mean, of course, I think the people in the B movie aisle should know who Mark Boone Jr. is. Um, he is one of the main characters in. He was one of the main characters in. Um, God, what is? I know the I know the creator's name, but um, I can't think of the um, the motorcycle. Sons of Anarchy. There we go. He oh, was in Sons yeah, of yeah, Arctic. Yeah. yeah, he plays one of the uh, main guys in. Um, he, may, he plays one of the main characters in. In that he shows up in a lot of Scorsese or not a Scorsese uh, uh, Fincher films, uh, but it's all to say that there's this great cast about this, literally this novella of a of a story yeah. about this break between a muse, uh, like an artist and a muse, and it's. Um, <laughs> What I love about it is that it it is like literally a 30 minute Scorsese film. Like it's all the stuff that you would want in a Scorsese film, but just compacted into 30 minutes. And that was what I meant a while ago when I was very generically saying that it's a great example of what it is. 
And so yeah. in my mind, it's like a great example of if a short film were made by Martin Scorsese. You're, and and yep. 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 Because uh, it, it's you're right. It's got all of the, you know, the visual elements, all of the things that you're used to. Uh, it's just a, a shorter piece. And, uh, you know, th there's always been the discussion of that there are certain subjects that just aren't cinematic, that just don't make for good movies. Mm. And one of them is movies about like writers or people who are tied to desks. And so you occasionally get the uh, All the President's Men spotlight. Uh, we were just discussing uh, off air a second ago, the report. Yes. Uh, you get, you know, certain films that transcend the I'm a journalist or somebody who is tied to a desk and write for a living, but it's just not very cinematic. And one of the other ones is painting. You know, just some guy standing yep. in front of a canvas uh, painting does not really lend itself uh, to being a, uh, you know, a, a great film, you know, great cinema. And yet he does it. And, you know, of course, one thing that helps is, is Nick Nolte is kind of one of these Jackson Pollock kind of painters. Yes. So, you know, it's a very aggressive, you know, paint splashing, slashing with the brush, uh, all this kind of really kinetic kind of painting. Uh, but Scorsese just does such a good job of capturing art and artist uh, that he kind of breaks that rule of, you know, if you, if you want a movie to go somewhere and die, uh, you know, show somebody painting or show somebody writing. <laughs> you're you're absolutely you're absolutely right. Um, he he uses. So what I love about this film is that, it, like I said, it's 30 minutes and it's the first like I um, I own the terrible Mill Creek uh, DVD edition of this. <laughs> uh, it, it's it's sh it's truly shitty, guys. But if you can find it for like three bucks, pick it up um, until Kino brings out theirs. I think Kino is bringing out their newest edition in uh, 2020. Uh, it just got announced. Oh, I don't know great. what kind of sp I, I would love to have like special features on that just because the three directors that have directed this. But um what I love about this film is that it, it, it it's a shot of Scorsese at a small a small asking price, which to me it's like when you watch a Scorsese film, you watch it all. You don't watch segment uh, segments of it, even if like say something like Goodfellas is episodic, you still watch the whole fucking thing. I mean, it's just it's the respect for the filmmaker. And sometimes I want to see a Scorsese film, but I don't want to spend the two hours with. Or two hours plus most of the time. Um, <laughs> yeah. With the, two with and a half character. to three. Exactly. Well, I mean, like our main topic, three and a half hour movie. Uh, <laughs> literally. Um, but with this, it's so small and compact, but it's all the stuff that you expect from a Scorsese film, including in 30 minutes, he drops 11 tracks, 11 needle drops. The the most, the the biggest one, the one that the film is, the one the film is is like wrapped around is uh, Lighter Shade of Pale, um, which is a great track, and he uses it multiple times to great effect. That one and Like a Rolling Stone, um, which, I mean, yeah. of course, a Scorsese film without a Rolling Stone track, which we're going to get to later on on this podcast, is kind of weird to me. Like, even like, like 
I like I half expected him to pull a baller move in silence and do some kind of Rolling Stone song at the end, like just some <laughs> kind of like middle finger like he he, he he can have a tendency to do. But um, but yeah, like uh, I think one of the things that the, the, the strongest things for me in this one is his needle drops and how raw everything seems to be around it. It really is like a kind of like a punk rock track, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. It. Uh, yeah. It. It just has so much energy to it, mm-hmm. and 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 that's one of the things. You know, I I do a a short film festival here in Georgia, uh, and I'm one of the programmers for it, and and it's uh, I guess one of the biggest criticisms that I have sometimes of of short films is they just feel like a piece of something bigger. Like you didn't yeah. get the whole story, like there was a bigger story to be told, but they just gave you a little fragment of it. And to me, it plays like that fragment. Mm-hmm. And and so in this, it's the whole story all compacted into, you know, 30, 35 minutes, whatever it runs, and is just so incredibly effective. You don't feel like, you know, you got, you know, one fourth of a two hour movie. No, you know, absolutely. it's it's it, it, it's the whole story uh, fit into the smaller space. You you are absolutely 100 percent right. Like uh, um, I would actually like um, I was when I was when I watched this, um, it was around the same time. I know this is going to sound weird, but it was around the same time that um, I had just gotten the Daniel Craig 4K UHD discs uh, for the his for the Daniel Craig Bond films. And I watched it around the same time that I watched Quantum of Solace. And it really makes this weird kind of funny, um, great double feature, like a short film and a feature length film together because of the kind of things that they're dealing with and how they're they're both codas like. Like what I love about life lessons is life lessons like you were talking about is it a complete it, it's, it's a complete story. It's telling the story of someone who is losing like, you know, is losing his muse and quite possibly losing his what he feels like he is losing his talent. Um, they're both like in it, but it's done without framing the big relationship that caused this the the relationship between the muse and the artist and quite similarly where um i know it's going to sound like weird in a stretch but quantum of solace is a guy putting to bed to rest a relationship that he fully vested in that was a complete lie and it's about how these two men who are stuck in there who are very dogmatic are stuck in these these ruts that they need to get out of and how they deal with it. And it's an interesting, it's an interesting combo. If you're willing to take the risk on, on, uh, on my lunacy of a Scorsese, uh, a Scorsese short film and a big budget, like spy thriller. But it, it is something that I, I had to mention this because it, it just kind of magically happened. Well, you know, I would bet, but I don't know that mm-hmm. if, there were a commentary or if there were some kind of Q and a and something like that. And you asked Scorsese, why did you agree to do this? I think some of the answer would be the challenge of telling a story in a shorter period of time, because he has a tendency as we were discussing to kind of run long 
And those films are meticulously edited. You know, it wouldn't surprise Mm -hmm. me if, you know, his average film, uh, the initial assembly was, you know, four or five hours, and then he's got to cut it down uh, to something that really moves. Because the, the thing that amazes me about his long films, and we'll get to this with The Irishman, is that they can be that long, you know, two hours and 45 minutes, three hours, three and a half hours, and just move the whole time. Just the sense of pace. Uh, is still there. There's still an urgency in something that is three and a half hours long. And, uh, and so I think that, you know, writers universally acknowledge, oh, it's much easier to write a novel than it is to write a really good short story because I have, you know, a chance to, to, you know, you know, obviously expound and build the characters and give them a backstory and, you know, have plot arcs and themes that run all the way through it and everything like that. And so not every novelist would be a good short story writer. And so I think some of, of the appeal of this may have been, I mean, how, how different could it be when you think of it's rated PG. So one of the things that you think of with Scorsese is language, you know, F bombs mm-hmm. all over the place and, you know, strong language from the characters and all of that. So he's making a PG rated 30 minute film. I mean, just that just sounds like the total antithesis of what he would do. And so I would bet you that some of the appeal of this project was just the challenge of doing that in a compelling way. No, absolutely. I like it, it really does. Like in his career, you'll you'll notice that he does things that are almost like palate cleansers. And this really mm-hmm. does feel like him shaking off a lot of shit creatively, probably creatively and financially. Like, you know, just to kind of free himself up from the stodginess of making uh, big budget productions or, or even just making a film. I mean, in, like a th- like this, I guarantee you this probably took two, all of two weeks. And with the way that, like, the way that it feels so loose, it, like, it, it just, it really does feel like him shaking off shit that he needed to shake off for whatever reason. Um, because literally after this, um, I think he, he goes right into Goodfellas. So, like, like it's right. almost like it's a palate cleanser. Or it's also training for the next thing because there's that energy that carries carries over from New York stories that feels very much present in Goodfellas. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, let's go ahead and move on to your number two, um, which is bringing out the dead. Oh, such a great one. Um, why don't you talk a little bit about why you chose bringing out the dead and what the you bringing out the dead is actually about? Well, you know, it's, uh, I will have to tell you the funny thing about this is if ever there was one that I needed to, to re-see, mm-hmm. uh, it is this one, uh, because the last time I saw this was in theaters 20 years ago. Ah, uh, okay. and, and so, you know, not only is it underappreciated in general, I think maybe it's gone underappreciated by me <laughs> and, uh, but I, cause I remember, I remember really liking it and I remember mm-hmm. it kind of died a box office death and, and, and nobody was singing big praises. You know, this is, uh, following Goodfellas, following Casino, and clearly going in a different type of a direction, uh, you know, not a gangster movie. Uh, really, in a, in a way, it's a ghost story. 
you know, yep. uh, and, uh, but it's, it, once again, he, we were discussing in the last installment of the podcast that he's almost a sociological kind of filmmaker. I mean, he does this amazing world building, uh, within his movies and, uh, you know, it's kind of like when people will say, well, you know, all he does is make those gangster movies. I'm like, if you see Goodfellas and you see Casino and you see the same movie, there's you, you aren't watching right because yep. it's two completely different worlds, two completely different, you know, sets of character dynamics. I mean, if you want to talk about, you know, people killing people as de facto what his movies are about, then, yeah, I guess they're similar. But that's about where it ends. And so uh, he does this great job of kind of building these industries, these worlds that, you know, <laughs> at least in some of these movies, I hope you're not involved in. Uh, <laughs> but uh, and bringing them to life. And so in this one, you have Nicolas Cage playing like an EMT uh, who is haunted by kind of the people that he didn't save. I mean, you can tell that he's just kind of riding the ragged edge of, you know, burnout, depression, you name it, uh, making these, uh, you know, EMT uh, runs to try to save people in various medical and and accident and, you know, violence and, and things like that that are inflicted on folks. And he's, of course, uh, uh, kind of obsessed with the the ones that got away. And what I remember is this thing just kind of being a literal just hellscape urban uh, kind of situation, but then it also being a hellscape in this character's mind. And so Absolutely. you were getting the external and you were getting the internal. And so to me, it was just something, you know, completely different subject matter wise. It very much fits in that palate cleanser uh, category that you were just talking about, uh, but is just, you know, incredibly, um, involving. I mean, it just kind of, his movies just kind of envelop you and you just find yourself, you know, riding along with these guys, uh, for a couple of hours and it's just, uh, you know, incredibly well done. You're, you're absolutely right. Um, I I have revisited this one recently, probably in the last four or five years, and we've definitely slept on this. Like as a Scorsese film, it it's it's directed by Scorsese. It's written by Paul Schrader, which it really does feel like the spiritual cousin or spiritual sequel to Taxi Driver because they're dealing with similar thing. Like they're dealing with a like a New York that is very similar. It's, it's, it's not Scorsese's True. New York. It's Schrader's New York. And I think that that's something that has to be very, very, very clear to everybody is, is that when Scorsese and Schrader team up, it's usually a deep dive into New York as hell, New York as a nightmare. And I think Scorsese loves doing it. Um, but I don't like I think that he he understands that Schrader is his collaborator. I think one thing that gets lost and I think that like what I find is funny about like the first the the first two things that we've we've talked about so far uh, with his underrated is how 
like with his underrated like well in general how he collaborates with people like schrader is somebody that he's come back to three times and worked with uh worked with him first on taxi driver then came back with last temptation of christ and then bringing out the dead all of them are adaptations by the way um bringing out the dead is joe uh, a joe Connolly novel um the uh last temptation of christ i cannot remember or i know who the director or the the writer's name is he's a greek writer and i will totally mispronounce his name if i say it but that was an adaptation of a thousand page novel um and then of course taxi drivers is uh famously from uh notes from the underground uh tolstoy's notes from the underground uh which is a very famous novel if you've not read it as a film fan you really should read it because it's a very 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 um what, what shall we say influential scott because of the lone gunman Right. Um, yeah, oh, absolutely. Of, uh, aspect of that particular 250 year old. If you guys think that the lone gunman theory has just came up in the 60s, no, you're very wrong. You <laughs> have to just go back into 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 history to see that the lone gunman has been here for a long time. He may not have had a gun, but he's definitely been lone. Um, what I love about this this movie, the more than anything else, is how much he took. He just took a few key collaborators, but then acting wise, he decided to wipe his slate clean and get a brand new set of actors in this um, in this uh, in this film. And what you get is a very different attitude and like look at New York. Uh, this is definitely pre Giuliani New York. When you watch this, it is, and, and I love that it, he got Robert Richardson. Um, at the height of Robert Richardson's like visual acuity in his particular style with that harsh overlight. Like, you know what I mean, Scott? Like the stuff that he did with with like the, the, the stuff that we know him for for Oliver Stone work, he just kind of translates over to Scorsese and gives us right. this really interesting um look uh that like he started to refine like when he started to work with Richardson, which I find is a, a very interesting period because he's done so so many like there's a there's a colorfulness, there's a color scheme that him and Richardson seem to work with a, a lot that I really like. Um that's really present here. Um but was there like for me what sticks out most is the fact that the three drivers that that they the, the three actors that they chose to be drivers with with um Nicolas Cage's Frank Pierce, John Goodman, Ving Rhames and Tom Sizemore, which is such the complete opposite of one another. Um I love that. I love the, that he makes these choices that are People have a tendency, like, I don't know, like, maybe I'm somebody who who reads negative criticisms way too much, but oftentimes I feel like the, one of the bigger things that Scorsese's leveled, like, what's leveled at Scorsese is um, that he casts the same people, which he does sometimes, but I think here is a big, like, look at guy, a guy who's, like, who loves actors and loves seeing different actors come on screen for him. Um, I was wondering if maybe you could talk a little bit about the cast of this, this, um, this film and how it informs on, on the actual film itself. 
Yeah, it, uh, you know, the, the, one of the interesting things I think about, uh, this movie is, uh, some of the casting against type. Yeah. You know, you know, like, I mean, just actors that you don't necessarily associate with this kind of a film. And so, I mean, especially like, I mean, I guess to me, you know, one of the main ones is of course like John Goodman. Yeah. Uh, because you know, you just, you think of John Goodman and you just kind of think of like, you know, the big funny guy and, and comedies and things of that nature. And so I think it's also important that, you know, and no offense to John Goodman, but you know, he doesn't cast just pretty faces. No, he doesn't. And, and that, and that's one of the things that I think really works uh, in this movie and in other movies of his is it just looks like a group of people, you know, some films that you see, it's just, you know, one matinee idol looking person, uh, and one, you know, gorgeous actress after another. And when you get them all together on screen, you're looking at it thinking like, wow, I've literally never been in a room with that many good looking people in it. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and that's one of the reasons that I think like, you know, I've been a, over the years, I've been a huge fan of British television. And I think one of the reasons that I am is it's acting first yes. and then how good looking are you second? No, and so absolutely. some of the lead characters in British television would totally be like bit player character parts here in the U S which they just really from a are. look standpoint. Yep. Yep. Just from a looks standpoint. And so to me, you lose some of your realism in that. And so if you want to make a big summer tentpole movie or, you know, whatever, uh, when they made the you know Baywatch movie with the rock or that mm-hmm. kind of stuff, that's fine that it's going to be populated by, you know, gorgeous folks and everything. But if you're trying to make a gritty you know, realistic movie about this, you know, EMT kind of industry and, and what goes on in some kind of urban hospital in the wee hours of the morning, uh, having this kind of diversity of appearance and, and everything like that, uh, is part of what makes it work. No, it, it, I think you put the nail right in the, uh, right in the head or in the coffin, whatever you want to say. Um, definitely, feels like that and not just this movie but in a lot of his movies um a a lot of his movies have that that feeling where you have the star um but the cast is just littered with these great um what we what most people consider character actors um or you know they're just not cast in the manner in which um, in which you're used to you're used to seeing uh, seeing them cast. I mean, who casts Mark Anthony as a crackhead, a dreadlock wearing crackhead? Scorsese does, though everybody else would have him be whatever good looking like Lothario character that they would normally cast him in. Um, it's that kind of stuff that's pretty amazing and is very 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 much so in uh, bringing out the dead. I think that this is one. 
that once it gets a major release again, like a major DVD or I'm sorry, a major Blu-ray release, I think that film, right. I think that film Twitter is going to blow up. Um, I was hoping like as a side, as a side note, like I was really hoping that when Kundun finally came out on Blu-ray, which I do own, um, it wasn't, it's not one of my underrated though. It probably should have been, um, I was hoping that would get some more luster because of the amazing uh, Deacon's photography. Um, that movie is just, you want to see a really, a director go really personal and deep dive on something. Go watch Kundun. That with a combination of silence at the, like do a, do a double feature of that. And yeah, but, um, but yeah, like I really, I really honestly feel like, like it should and it probably will if they, or even if Criterion brings it out and does a whole full on, um, uh, a full on special edition, which it really truly does deserve. I mean, there's enough to talk about it with, like the way that because of the mo- the movie is pretty close to modern era. Um, I think he sets it a little bit before, like in the early '90s, and the reason why he does that specifically is because Giuliani hasn't taken, um, hasn't uh, become mayor and started to, like you know, uh, uh, like militarize the uh, the <laughs> uh, New York to turn it into Disneyland right. and all of that stuff. Well, we right. we won't get into those yeah, politics, clean but. Yeah, uh, to clean up, uh, it was still a hellscape in the early 90s. That's why the, like, you get all of these great, like, early 90s songs, like What the Frequency, Kenneth, um, 10,000 Maniacs. Uh, You still get some really apt uh, Sex Pistols uh, tracks that he loves using, uh, which, to me, like, I would have loved to have seen, like, we have to talk about it just a little bit. How much would you have loved to have seen Scorsese Scorsese's iteration of Gangs of New York in the 80s that he wanted to do with De Niro playing the DiCaprio part and it set to a score of Sex Pistols and The Clash. <laughs> right. That's just that's just a wild concept. Um yeah. but uh, but all to say it's a great choice. It it really is a great choice. It's something that I did kind of waver on and uh thought that I was going to bring to the table but then I was like, "Eh, I have another film. My number two is actually the complete opposite of bringing out the dead because it's not a haunted ghost story. It's, it's a, it's a jubilant celebration of music, uh, which is something that you probably, I don't know. Like, I think that a lot of people don't think of Scorsese as a jubilant filmmaker or somebody that is just, like can make a film that's just pure joy um especially with the the main feature <laughs> is definitely not that kind of movie um but uh my second pick is the last waltz uh the ah nice yeah the the documentary about the band um and their and their true final concert like i i want to say that <laughs> i want to say that very yeah, clearly yeah they they stuck to it Yes, they did. And no reunion tour. <laughs> no, no, it, there wasn't. And um the thing that I love the most about this movie is that um Scorsese directing a pseudo documentary. It's 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 kind of a documentary but concert. It's kind of done in the middle because he does give you Robbie Robertson and the band's history and kind of gives you a like a a run and gun kind of update as they do this 
uh, this last waltz, which is their last their last concert. Robbie Robertson and the band uh, got together literally a who's who of uh, 50s, 60s and 70s talent um, to come along and join them on their uh, on their tour that would uh, that ended as it um, that ended uh, where the band kind of began uh, like uh, began performing concerts in this smaller venue, but they had people like uh, they had people like Eric Clapton, Neil Diamond, Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell, um, Neil Young, Amy Lou Harris, Dr. John. Dr. John takes a big uh, him and Van Morrison take a big par- uh, chunk of it. Muddy Waters, um, Ronnie Wood from. Um, Oh gosh, I always want to. I always want to say the faces, but uh, where else? <laughs> the is Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones. There we go. <laughs> um, there is literally a who's who of of rock talent, and what I found later on was a a lot of people consider it the end of the seventies, like the the end of like rock as like seventies down and dirty like rock music like what we define mm-hmm. as 60s and 70s rock a lot of people consider this the last document the document that says it's the end we're gonna go into something new and eventually i mean invariably yeah. kind of like at that moment we did didn't we yeah the yeah the yeah you're right it's 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 almost like the last waltz of more than just that one band so mm-hmm. yeah but no i'm yeah, i've always been a huge fan of the band uh i love um Bob Dylan's basement tapes that was made yes. with them. That's a great release. Uh, you know me, I've, I've, you know, just as a hobby have played drums for years and years and years. And I've always been a big leave on helm, uh, fan. Anybody who has yes. that drumming style and that singing voice was kind of doubly blessed. Uh, and so, yeah, it's a, it's a, a great, you know, chronicle, uh, of that show, but in true kind of Scorsese documentary fashion, it manages to capture things bigger than just that single performance. You know, you're absolutely right. And um, just as a little kind of um, uh, just as a side note, Levon Helm or Levon Helm, great actor. Like he was, he, he's, he's shown up in so many different things. Um, mo- like, most people will probably know him if they saw the sh- uh, they saw the adaptation of the book Shooter with uh, Mark Wahlberg. He plays the he plays the sniper sniper, uh, Mister Rate. Uh, he's great in that. Uh, there's a there's a pretty great uh, there's a pretty uh, great couple of documentaries about him that mm-hmm. I definitely want to. Um, I definitely would want to point people to because he is such an interesting, uh, such an interesting man. The the one, the biggest one is it ain't uh, 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 ain't in ain't in it for my health. A film about uh, Levon Helm. Mm-hmm. That one I feel like like gives everybody a full understanding of who he is, where he came from, his music. Um, it's just a great, it, it, it is a great, um, it's, it, it's a great documentary. There's another documentary, uh, called lightning in a bottle, uh, that's 
about B.B. King, but he plays a pretty big part in it that I would definitely suggest. But uh, there's a couple of other things in there that he like I would suggest people uh, go ahead and find out because he's a very special, special man um, and an interesting man. Uh, not just I mean, the whole band, the, the, the band themselves are just kind of amazing uh, when you when you realize who they are, if you're a if you're if you're a music head. Um, and Robbie Robertson is somebody who would eventually would would become a really big collaborator with uh, Scorsese, not just on his musical projects, but like on his, any of his films. Like one of the big things was he really helped Scorsese shape that Goodfellas and Casino soundtrack. Those for like those things that have literally 300 tracks in them and they may only <laughs> right. drop for like five seconds. But right. Robertson, Robertson helps him a lot. Um, like again, collaborators was something that I feel like is something that's lost about Scorsese. Um, and plus the music just fucking rocks and the Blu-ray that they just recently released has a great 5.1 DTS sound uh, track, uh, which the film, it's funny because the film is very, earthy i should say like i would say um if you want a fun thing if you want to do a fun thing go ahead and look up all of the cameramen the people who did camera work on the last waltz and you will be shocked to see how many of the biggest cinematographers in the 70s and 80s showed up for scorsese to do (laughs) just camera work um like i'll just give you a sample like uh you know michael bayless showed up who hadn't who didn't begin to work with him for at least another eight years um um what's his oh gosh uh Vilmos Sigmund uh showed up to do some camera work I mean this is like there's a who's who of people that had actually done cinematography uh for The Last Waltz and it's just a little interesting side note to note that there are people that are arming the cameras that are not cameramen. I mean, they're cinematographers and there's a big difference. Of course, you guys should know that, but, um, it's just a great work. And even if you don't like rock music, it's a document of a time that, uh, gives you a little bit more context than you would ever think. And I think that's the thing that I love about his documentaries. Um, I just recently, like, um, last year, I watched the three hour um, because he's done multiple documentaries about Dylan. But the last one, um, the Rolling Thunder Review, a Bob, uh, a Bob Dylan story by Martin Scorsese. Amazing. And the reason the reason why it's amazing. And I'll let you talk a little bit about it for me is context. He gives so much context for the era. And then appropriately enough, he shot a uh, Rolling Stone show. Yeah. He did uh, shine a light. Shine a light. Mm-hmm. Did did shine a light. I mean, he did so many like it, like his musical documentaries alone are a subgenre. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, but it definitely uh, it's definitely like of the of the of the ones that you could choose. I chose the last waltz because it's important. It like it's important to his career too because it it gives him a different outlet for the frustrated musician that I think he is. <laughs> that's, that's a nice way to look at it. That's cool. Absolutely. I, uh, he, um, 
it's uh, if I'm not mistaken, the the Eureka home video release that you're referring to uh, that just came out recently. I think it's on sale on Amazon for like twenty one, twenty two dollars. And yep. so, uh, yeah, so it's out there available to get right now in a really definitive edition. Absolutely. And you guys should definitely do that. Um, so, Scott, what is your number one? My number one underrated is Hugo. And nice. uh, and earlier when I was saying, you know, uh, it, you know, it's my picks are great examples of what they are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what I was referring to inarticulately was uh, the short film with the New York Stories Life Lesson segment and then a movie for kids, a uh, family friendly uh, children's movie. But the interesting thing about Hugo is, you know, one thing, one passion within a passion that you and I share is we love home 3D. Yes. And uh, and have, you know, scoured the globe for <laughs> the 3D televisions uh, and technology that will let us use our vast collection of 3D Blu-rays. Uh, and so to me, it's just it's just stunning 3D. Uh, I thought that when I saw it in the theater uh, and I think that, uh, you know, as I uh, watch it on home video release, that if you can think of these, you know, long tracking shots and things like that, that he's so famous for, and then think of putting those in 3D. And so uh, when somebody asked me, I remembered uh, right around the time Hugo came out and I'd seen it in the theater and they thought it was strange that Martin Scorsese's name was associated with it. They said, well, what did you think about it? And I said, well, let me put it to you this way. What if you took a great artist and gave him a brand new color that had never existed before? And then he went and painted something with it. And I said, that's the way I look at his use of 3D. It's like they put, you know, a new quality or a new capability in his artistic palette and it, it becomes in my opinion one of the best 3d movies ever made and it's his only one so you know that just lets you know as far as the visual artistry uh that he's capable of is concerned that you know he he can knock it out of the park if you give him a visual tool to work with and uh, and on top of that i mean not just i mean you could practically put it on mute and just sit back and be you know awed by the film just from the visuals uh, but it's just a great little story you know i just i really enjoy it i think it's a a, a good kids film that isn't dumbed down it isn't patronizing uh, it has an interesting story to tell, and uh, and so uh, and you know even incorporates uh, Scorsese's love of film history uh, into the uh, the plot line of the movie, and so it's uh, uh, I think one that uh, is the most common one that comes up that somebody will go, oh really? Did he make that? And so I think that's probably the definition of <laughs> of underappreciated. It definitely is. Now, I have to ask you this because it's it's an interesting um, exercise and it's on the fly. What film of Scorsese's would you like to see other than Hugo um, as a 3D feature? <laughs> oh, wow. Um, that's an interesting question. You know, uh, 
part of me goes a little bit obvious and thinks of the swirling camera movements and all of the interesting things that a casino has to show you and think that that could be interesting just because the architecture uh, of the uh, of the the location is so interesting. Uh, I think of things like, you know, Ace's car blowing up there at the very beginning if that were in 3D. Oh, good uh, grief. That would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so that one's kind of obvious. But, you know, then again, uh, strangely enough, I often find the thought of, like, period pieces yeah. with 3D to be interesting and to really immerse you into your surroundings. So... You know, anything from, you know, Last Temptation uh, to the Age of Innocence. I think that it would be a really immersive kind of experience to drop you into one of his period films with good 3D. No, absolutely. That's what I was thinking. I was actually thinking about Gangs of New York. Yeah, um, yeah another great example. Yeah, just be, just to give us a little bit more of an expanded um, yeah, that gets period uh, and, and action, so that would that would work nicely. Yeah, and who wouldn't want to see Daniel Day Lewis in in at least one three D movie? Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, I I adore Hugo for all of those reasons that you just discussed. Um, it's it's one of those films that just finds perfectly like Scorsese's interest all lined up. Um, and gives you the possibility of doing something special with, like you said, like with the 3d, it is, it is definitely one of those movies that you show to people, um, in 3d. I think I've only, I've only ever seen it in 3d because I own the, of course I own the disc. Um, I saw it in theaters and Scorsese had made a point of saying, like, that's the way that you should be seeing this movie. I designed it. It's it. I, uh, you know, I designed it to be in 3D. And so all of my all of my viewings of it have always been in 3D. Um, it's just this wonderfully warm film that um, talks about conservation or preservation, not just in a general film way, but like the preservation of our history and. Uh, and it's just a very warm, beautiful story about loss, but also finding, um, uh, finding, uh, f finding things through loss. And it's it's just a great kids film. I mean, it's not even a great kids film. I mean, that's kind of insulting calling Hugo a kids film. It's almost <laughs> exactly. like it, it's like it's like what people want to say when it comes to uh, Disney films. Like it's a family thing. It's uh, it's for the the person that's eight months all the way up to eighty. Well, Hugo definitely lives up to that. Um, yeah. Well, you know the the common complaint so often about family movies is they're kind of simple minded. It's like yes. to, to, and so the ones that everybody always talks about and always has accolades for are the ones that rise above that are the ones that are like, Hey, it was entertaining. My kids enjoyed it. They weren't wiggling in their seats, bored to death or whatever, but it wasn't stupid. You know, it was smart. I enjoyed it too. It brought a lot for adults along with bringing a lot for kids. And so I think that's what Hugo does really well. And I think your point earlier about it being designed for 3d is, is a great point. You know, this film is like the antithesis of a 3d conversion. 
You know, you, you yeah. sit through films that, you know, during the 3D craze, they were like, oh, well, we shot it 2D, but let's computer convert it to 3D. And you're sitting there watching it, and it's really not making use of the form because it wasn't shot that way. And so when you leave, you're like, yeah, I mean, it was a pretty good action movie or whatever it was you were seeing. But, you know, I kind of feel like I just gave away three or four extra bucks because the 3D didn't amount to anything. And Hugo is like the exact opposite. It's like it's cognizant of every second of that film that it's in 3D. And consequently, there's always something really cool to look at. So if you want to talk about, you know, people who will say, oh, you know, the more I watch that movie, you know, I see something new with it every time. A lot of times they're talking about thematically that, you know, I just get further into the depths of a movie uh, with rewatching. And uh, and that to me is a sign of, of a great film of that type. But with regard to Hugo, it's like every time you see it, there's some visual detail that you didn't pick up on the first time because the frame is just so packed with interesting things to look at in the 3D format. No, you're absolutely that's 100 percent correct. Um this, like, I always say that, like, you know, these films come at an interesting time in Scorsese's um, career, but they literally do. I mean, like, the these films, like, I see them and I'm like, I'm more, like, and I know this sounds, I don't know, it kind of sounds shitty of me to say this, but I find, like, and kind of film Twitter hipster elitist, but I find the work that isn't the major work far more fascinating than the major work. Right. Does that make oh, yeah. sense? Yeah, yeah, like, no, absolutely. Like, like I, we can talk, I mean, obviously, we fucking, you guys can tell with us, like, I mean, we spent, like, this was designed to be one episode and it's turned into two because we talked so fucking much about the great Scorsese. And it's not to say that we can't talk, like, I can't talk about that. It's to say that I find the the work more interesting because it's because of the fact that it's the choices that he makes that are untypical or are not typical of 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 this man like this man who decides to like make gangster films and make the gangster films that we know <laughs> um but it's all to say it's very, very interesting when he decides not to make the gangster films. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, you know, and to me, that's, that is where, you know, the people on Twitter and, and usually it, it relates back to the topic, uh, from our first installment of this podcast, which is the dispute that he had over the Marvel movies and what is cinema and what isn't cinema. And so to me, the, oh, well, he only makes gangster films, uh, has sprung out of that. They're saying, well, what's he doing criticizing, you know, uh, a particular genre? All of his movies are one genre, too. And the bottom line is, all you do is just expose your own ignorance when you say something like that, because honestly, he's made fewer gangster films than he has made other types of films when you put them all together. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, so you're just, you know, missing, uh, you know, just missing the point. Uh, perhaps what you're saying is all I've ever watched is his gangster film. So consequently, I'm going to say that's all he's ever made. <laughs> this is this is very true. Um, so my number one, my number one underrated movie 
from uh, from Martin Scorsese is a film that netted somebody a best actor uh, a best actor Oscar and was a hit at the time and stars Tom fucking Cruise and yes it is The Color of Money the sequel to The Hustler um, mm-hmm. which I just okay so I just fucking found out that Walter Telvis or Tevis, uh, however you pronounce his name, the gentleman that directed the um, the the gentleman that directed the or, or wrote the novel that um, the man who fell to Earth is based off of one of my favorite sci-fi films of all time, and he wrote both the Hustler and the sequel to the Hustler, Color of Money. Um, which Martin Scorsese directed the sequel, uh, which finds the main character of The Hustler 20 years later. It's very interesting because it's a legacy sequel that was made in 1986, which is 33 years ago before we had legacy sequels. But here comes along Martin Scorsese fucking trailblazing, making a uh, making a, les- a legacy sequel that not only doesn't that not only works, but in my personal opinion, I feel like. I like color of money more than I like the hustler. And that's a bold statement. I know, (laughs) but I don't give a shit because it is Scorsese hungry and needing a hit. Like that's the context of this movie is Scorsese had been labeled somebody who made movies that cost a lot of money, but made no money whatsoever. Um, He had gone through a series of movies. I mean that, that ended with the King of comedy or uh, I think, wait, 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 was it raging bull? We, we, we just had this fucking, no, no, no. It was the King comedy that ends with the King of comedy that were all $30 million plus movies that made no money. (laughs) And so he goes and he's out in the wild and then he makes this little punk rock ditty called after hours. And it shows that he can make a movie for under a million dollars, which I still find so hilarious that that movie cost, like, I think it was like 1.2, but it's still the one of the most darkly comedic movies of all time. Um, And then you have this movie, which is him doing a studio job, like him taking a studio job, but the best possible studio job that he could ever take. Disney was so hungry for respectability in adult films. And I don't mean adult films as in pornography, guys. Come on, let's get your guys fucking like you know minds out of the gutter but mature filmmaking because back in the day it was the opposite it was that like films and movies like movies weren't respectable they weren't like you know they they weren't what studios wanted studios wanted films that they could win oscars and they could make a lot of money off of they basically like within the budget they basically the budget and casting they needed to cast tom cruise as the secondary lead. And of course they had to have Paul Newman. And, but within those confines, they let Martin Scorsese do what he wanted. What ends up happening is color of money, which is just a shot of energy that you have to see. Like if you watch the hustler and you watch color of money, the hustler is like your dad's version, the okay boomer version of a story. Whereas (laughs) the color of money is like, the Sex Pistols interpretation of that fucking movie. It's like, fuck you. It's going to be less than two hours. Fuck you. We're, you're going to think that this is not about Eddie, uh, the Paul Newman character. It's about this new flashy kid, Vince, played by Tom Cruise, in 
can we just stop? Like, let me just stop and appreciate what a swinging dick Tom Cruise was at this moment. <laughs> I mean, okay. So like it comes out in 86, right? And I heard that Scorsese filmed it very quickly. Um, it's right the same year as Top Gun, but the swagger, like you watch yep. Cruise. Yeah, like, he's like Maverick, the billiard player. Exactly. Literally shows up and just, like I said, like the biggest swinging dick in the world. And like Newman and him have like have like chemistry to spare. Like it's always it, it's always it feels I, I I'm always so mad that they could not figure out the kind of money that they needed to get Paul Newman to be in Days of Thunder. Just because it would it, it just another movie between Newman and and Cruz would be would be phenomenal because of just how good they are in this film. And you watch this and you go, how the fuck did they not like like how do we not talk about this movie? The way that it's shot yep. um with the kinetic camera movements, um the sc- Yeah, well once again it's like it's like hearkening back to the painting and yeah. life lessons. I mean, you can make something like billiards that is confined to this table look so visually exciting uh, from the cinematography. You're absolutely right. And uh, I mean, again, has like, go look up the cast and there's some really great early, early performances by people in this movie. Um, And I love the turn. The movie starts as something but then slowly evolves and it does a little bit of a rope a dope on you. Um, and it becomes, it, it becomes the movie that you thought it was initially going to be. Um, and Newman fucking Newman's a Newman's a badass in this movie. Like he owns the screen. Um, this was actually the first movie that I saw with Newman in it where I was like, okay, I get it now. I, I, I can see it now. Like, I know why people love Newman. And then, of course, it became a Newman love affair. Um, I I uh, I love a lot of his work and just everything that he does. I mean, um, did you have anything to add about Color of Money? I've been, like, effusive play, effusively praising it for like, the last <laughs> five minutes. It's, uh, you know, the Color of Money kind of runs deep with me because my dad was such a fan of the hustler and i grew up with a uh, pool table in the house oh damn and my dad and my dad was quite a shooter and so he loved the hustler and uh so uh matter of fact uh, some years back uh he moved out to california moved out your way and uh, was setting up his like billiard room that he has out there and i sent him as a uh, christmas gift uh, three stills from the hustler uh, that I'd had framed and matted and everything. And so it's been hanging on his wall for probably the better part of 20 years now uh, since I gave it to him. Uh, so I knew the hustler backwards and forwards because my dad would watch it all the time and loved it. He was a big Jackie Gleason fan. Uh, one of the things that I don't know that everybody knows, but they both did their own shooting in that movie. Uh, Newman and Jackie Gleason. As a matter of fact, Jackie Gleason was actually considered one of the better billiard players on earth when he shot that movie. No, uh, plenty of people considered, yeah, plenty of people considered that he could have been a professional 
you know, I mean, he was obviously based on uh, Minnesota Fats, who was uh, a real, uh, you know, uh, pool player at the time. Yes. And so uh, all those, uh, they're called Massé shots, you know, the shots you see where, you know, they're, they're aiming the cue stick almost vertically and yeah. hit the cue ball and it knocks in a ball and then makes these big curves and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, Jackie Gleason shot all of his own shots in that movie. Uh, like that. And, um, and so it was, it was, uh, I love that movie, but you're right. I mean, as compared to a Scorsese take on that, I mean, you couldn't be any more different. It's black and white. It's very static in the sense of it's always people like sitting on bar stools, holding pool cues, talking, uh, and stuff like that. And so it's, it's a redemption tale, but it's a different kind of a redemption tale. And so to see, you know, the fast Eddie Felson character come into uh, modern times and be more on the kind of commercial pool shooting circuit uh, with Tom Cruise and everything like that. And and I think there's a reason that there is that divide in the movie is, you know, it begins very Hustler-esque. You know, they're just out scamming people, conning people, hustling people in pool halls. But then it makes that modern transition to the world of tournament play. And so it's definitely making a point of moving forward, leaving that world behind and entering uh, this this new world. And you know what? I mean, the final line of the film is I'm back. And then he breaks that last rack of balls and the the, uh, title cards come up. And so, uh, you know, that's, uh, I guess kind of the, the ultimate <laughs> redemption story is when you even got the primary character at the end of the movie, acknowledging that he's back. No, absolutely. And, and the best part about it is it does, it does what I love in movies, which is it fucking ends and it doesn't over explain itself. It yep. literally just, like you said, like, you know, cue up ball hits. The uh, the 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 fucking um, the um, Eric Clapton song comes on and then the credits roll like it's all you need. And yeah, it's just it's one of those movies that literally it's it like you. I think that people that have not have seen it are like when they do end up watching this movie, it's going to be an interesting spin for them because I don't think that they've they've not seen the R rated version of Tom Cruise and what he does. And he really is the R-rated version of the Tom Cruise that we know. Um, right. Added in with this whole swarmy dick, like, portrayal. Like, this this guy who's just, like, a little prick. Like, it, that's yeah. exactly what ends up happening in the movie. And it's like, like, I kind of want, like, Cruise to work with Scorsese again. I wish that he had had, like, that connection to him the way that Leo did. Because... I mean, okay, I'm going to just say this once, and it's probably fucking sacrilege, and Ray Liotta may fucking come after me and try to kill me, but Tom Cruise is fucking Henry Hill. Think about it for <laughs> it a second. It definitely would have been interesting. It would have been completely different, but it would have been one of those things where you go, wow, I could see that. Or even if they did the baller move of... Because they have similar, like, I know it sounds bad, but they have similar visual looks like De Niro and Scorsese at the time, or De Niro and Cruz doing him as young Jimmy Conway and then flipping it over to De Niro a little bit later. 
Like how, mm-hmm. like, like it just, like, it's one of those things where the, the cinematic what ifs. And I'm all about those, as you you know, and the listeners know, um, at least the old listeners do. But uh, yeah, it's just one of those movies that just kicks an ass. And I love that poster. I wish I had that fucking poster. Yeah. yeah <laughs> so yeah, your dad. It's, yeah, it's, it's a great film. And I would definitely recommend uh, do the double feature. See the yes. hustler. Uh, yes, see it. I mean, it's just a, it's it's a black and white classic. And so get that feel. Uh, you know, that kind of school of filmmaking, so to speak. And then you'll really appreciate what Scorsese does with it, you know, 30 plus years later uh, when Color of Money comes out. So if, yep. if you decide you want to rent one, rent them both and, uh, you know, watch them, watch them back, back to back. And it's it's a it's a knockout. It it is in the best in the best humanly way possible. Um and with that, we're going to head into our main topic. One of, one of the things about a film three and a half hours and what this Netflix venue afforded us was I wasn't sure about, how should I put it, uh, four theaters, four home viewing, um, looking at it in sections, looking at it for the end, looking at the end first and going back to the beginning. It's that kind of a picture, I think. I find that when I was running it here in this room, I said, oh, you know, I have to see the whole thing again to figure out. And after the first five minutes, I was enjoying watching it. Now, I'm not saying because, oh, I made it. It just was an interesting, um, an interesting um, uh, uh, narrative structure. And so we come to our main (laughs) our main topic. Um, The Irishman uh, recently released on Netflix uh, had been playing for a couple of weeks uh, in very limited, limited release in theaters and um, the newest Martin Scorsese film. Uh, So um, we're going to just kind of open up with just general thoughts. Um, Scott has a great, great uh, video review. Um, up right now, currently for the Irishman, but I'd like to him for him to talk a little bit about his thoughts and um, uh, his thoughts on on the film itself and Scorsese. Yeah, you know the uh, when somebody asked me, I had the opportunity to see it at a critic screening about I don't know three weeks before it opened in theaters, and then that was um, a few weeks before it would open on Netflix. So I saw it over a month ago, and. Uh, when my film loving friends asked me about it, I said, well, if Goodfellas casino and the Irishman are a gangster trilogy, this is the return of the King. And, uh, and, and, and that's the way that, that I view it. You know, it's, it's really interesting that of course, and I mean, these movies are not, uh, interconnected. They're not really a trilogy or anything like that, but it is kind of a way that you can look at it. You know, the, the first couple of films, Goodfellas and Casino are kind of people in the, the prime of their career, the prime of their life, looking to gain some kind of power, uh, and, you know, authority and what have you in kind of the criminal underworld. One of them, uh, is much more urban based. The other one is, uh, you know, based in the, in the glitz of, of, you know, Vegas and the casino world. Uh, but it's about a rise to power or to some form of power and control. And so the Irishman is very much about kind of the decline 
and the whole movie is. And I think that's one of the reasons that it's essential that it's three and a half hours long as many people who have moaned and groaned about the runtime, because essentially what you get is almost like a Goodfellas or casino type story on the front end. The first two hours is about somebody's rise to prominence and working his way up through uh, the ranks of a particular mob family and the relationships that he makes and stuff like that. But then the back hour and a half, you know, the, the third act of the film is about the consequences of all of that. And, uh, and, you know, we don't, it's interesting because in a world that is so violent, <laughs> so many people don't live to retirement. And so I think that's one of the reasons that in the Irishman, you get these little captions along the way where they'll introduce some minor character. You're probably never going to see again, and it'll have his name and then it'll have his date of death. And then we'll tell you what violent manner in which they died. And so it's pointing out along the way that, you know, <laughs> the vast majority of these people don't have to worry about old age. They don't have to worry about retirement. They don't have to worry about living with the consequences of what they've done along the way because they themselves get killed somewhere along the line. And so Robert De Niro plays Frank Sheeran, the the Irishman of the title, although we could argue about whether or not that's really the title. <laughs> We're going to get uh, to that in a second. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, you know, he's, he's worked his way up in, in this family as kind of a, a hit man following a, a stint in world war two. And he actually lives to be in his eighties. And, and so we see that it's not a spoiler. We see that in the very beginning of the film, uh, where we're getting one of these Martin Scorsese tracking shots winding through uh, not the Copacabana or not a casino or something like that, uh, but winding through the the hallways of a nursing home, of an yep. assisted living place or whatever you would like to call it. And it comes to rest on Robert De Niro in his 80s, uh, aged forward a little bit through makeup, and uh, sitting in a wheelchair, and he's going to be the person who who tells us uh, the story. And so it's it's kind of the rare instance where you've got somebody who has lived through this violent world uh, for basically an entire lifetime and is now left with whatever the aftermath of that is. And so it's a very different approach, you know, to, uh, uh, to one of these, uh, films and, uh, you can tell it from, you know, the music that they use, uh, to, like I said, the opening images that they use, uh, that this is going to be kind of like an elegy for gangster films as opposed to what we are used to in the past. Uh, no, you're hundred percent right. And you kind of put the, you, you really put it succinctly um about like what this film is about and what um we've gotten from scorsese in this um the the, the irishman aka i heard you paint houses um which i wish okay so like like let's get into that just a little bit since it's the beginning so what some people will find a little shocking at the beginning is we get a goodfellas style opening credit sequence that is not like it's only the title. It's literally the title. It's all. It's not like some kind of act of violence that we get. Um, 
but literally we get the title, which is the title of the book, which is I heard you paint uh you paint houses. Um not the Irishman. The Irishman, the the title, it's very weirdly, it comes at the end of the film when the film has ended and it says directed by Mars Scorsese. It literally cuts to the Irishman, a space, and then again, I heard you paint houses. Um, which I find weird because it's like like, okay, so what is your preference for the title, Scott? Uh, I mean, I, I like the uh, the the memoir title. Uh, Me too. I, uh, yeah, yeah, I really like that. And I don't know if it's just as simple as a marketing thing, uh, something quick, you know, just a couple of words instead of a mouthful uh, to say the title of it. You know, maybe it's easier to hashtag. I don't know. But uh, they, they changed it up, I'm sure, for marketing purposes purposes. Uh, but I love the title because I, I think there's a lot of, of irony in that, you know, the, yeah. uh, because I mean, the whole point is you get to know Frank Sheeran is, is just how he's so unfazed by all this stuff. Uh, you know, he's a very interesting character. When I talk about, you know, living with the aftermath of what you've done, I don't necessarily mean in a repentant way. You know, yeah. he, as he's going through this, you know, he kills people as casually as you'd paint a house. And so that's the reason I think that the, the title works, uh, is because, you know, they're, that's, you know, kind of the, the, I'm not a call sign, but like a, you know, like a, like a code word or something that, you know, somebody would say, I hear you paint houses. And, uh, that was an expression for, you know, that you, you kill folks, that you're a hitman. And one of the times he even answers, yeah, and I do my own carpentry, uh, which which I think just means I, I kind of set up the hit and, you know, clean it up afterwards or whatever. And uh, and so uh, it's, it's an interesting look at the mindset uh, of the character, uh, which is that, you know, murdering somebody can be boiled down to this kind of mundane kind of thing. And so uh, I really like that title. Uh, I think it um, captures the the kind of the tone or the mood of the the film, but I'm sure that it was you know some kind of corporate shenanigans that decided that it needed to be uh, something quicker and more to the point. Yeah, which is still the Irishman doesn't mean as much as I heard you paint houses to me uh, too. Like it's just it's one of those things where it. It prompts you to go, huh? And then when you see the film, you completely understand. And I also think that it, it's kind of a funny thing where it's paint houses and um, right, uh, like, you know, like his his first hit, Frank Sheeran, well, the first hit that we see from Frank Sheeran, um, which is during the opening moments, um, blood splatters on the painted walls. Uh, right. which I, like, which always seems to happen, uh, when, uh, in this movie, when they shoot somebody is that the walls are painted red, literally with brain matter. Um, <clears throat> it's, and it makes sense to me. That one makes sense more than the Irishman, because I mean, the Irishman indicates that it's going to be a movie about De Niro, which for my money, it's not about De Niro as much as it is about this entire life and about, like you said, it's an LG, uh, it's an LG to gangsterism and getting old, like it just getting old in general. And I think it's not yeah. just 
it's not just it's not just Frank Sheeran's story, but it is a story of many men. Um, uh, the three men actually that circle each other: uh, Frank Sheeran, Jimmy Hoffa, and uh, Russell. Uh, is it uh, Buffalino? Buffalino, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, uh, Russell Buffalino. Um, all played by, <laughs> which okay, so we we have to talk a little bit about how Scorsese never directed Pacino, but it took Pacino, De Niro, and Pesci this long to make a film together. Right. I mean, it's yeah, just like, you know, it, you know, one funny thing is, is I have so many friends who think that Donnie Brasco is a Martin Scorsese film. <laughs> That's hilarious but because because of just the 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 uh, the, uh, you know, the subject matter, the style of it and everything. And because one time when we were talking, I said something about that his violence is usually pretty matter of fact. Mm hmm. And that in the Irishman, it's very matter of fact. You know, there's no kind of big action sequence or some big bravura, you know, violence moment or something. It's mostly just a very matter of fact pop from out of nowhere and somebody's done. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they were like, oh, what are you talking about, man? That scene where Al Pacino has to cut up that body. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And then I realized, oh, (laughs) they're talking about Donnie Brasco. And I'm like, dude, that isn't a Martin Scorsese movie. <laughs> and, and so same thing when I said something about, yeah, it's amazing that this is the first time uh, that uh, Al Pacino has um, has worked with Martin Scorsese. A couple of my friends uh, saw my video review that you were referring to. Mm-hmm. And they're like, hey, dude, it was really good. But, man, you, you made one mistake in there. He's worked with Al Pacino before in that uh, movie with Johnny Depp. And I was like, once again, I was like, that's not a Martin Scorsese movie. So for whatever reason, my friends think that uh, Donnie Brasco is a a Martin Scorsese film. (laughs) Um, So I'd like to approach this from the the truly novelistic. And I don't mean that as like a like, oh, how cute. But the truly novelistic approach that Scorsese and uh, Steve Zalian, the, the person who actually wrote this script, approached this film because it is a very uncinematic format, like the way that they approach this, um, the way that they approach the the storytelling in this film. Uh, it is. When I heard somebody say it was a full meal, I didn't really recognize it until I actually got into the movie. And it's just like a novel, like like one of the touches, uh, and then I'll let you speak to this a little bit more. One of the touches that I, that I found um, both very intriguing, but also I completely now understood why no one would let Martin Scorsese make this film is the fact that Jimmy Hoffa, it's more than an hour into the film until we meet Jimmy and who Mm -hmm. is, who is Mm -hmm. a, who at the end of it, once he begins, it becomes a, a story, not about Jimmy Hoffa, but about his relationship with these two other men. And He is such a central figure in this movie. Um, it's very like there's a lot of movies that I th- feel like like Scorsese has referenced, but I think the biggest one, the one that no one is talking about, is Anthony Mann's El Cid. 
which mm-hmm. this this film is so fucking like El Cid in so many fucking ways because it's not it's a movie about the man behind like a man that takes the stage and the person the person that it's really about is the person that's behind him right and uh, along with there's a couple of other movies that I feel like nobody's mentioning like The Leopard like the leopard is a big, huge reference, I think, mm-hmm. for this film um, that no one's fucking talking about. I mean, I think that people, they're not, they haven't unpacked what Scorsese did here. And I think that's why some people are mad because it's a three and a half hour movie. How dare he make a movie that I have to commit to that much fucking time? Fuck you, Marty. Uh, it's literally what uh, people have uh, amounted to The Godfather to 2 is that long? Yeah. yeah. I don't understand that's, what the problem is. I don't either. And that's the thing is that it, and that's like one of my things, which is, is that like with the approach that he takes to the the story, with the, the approach that him and Zalian take, there's no other way to tell this movie than, than I feel than three and a half hours, the way that they told it. Um, how do you feel about that? The format? Yeah. Also- yeah. No. Yeah. That's that. And that's, you know, kind of what I was alluding to earlier when I said, you know, the first couple of acts of this film it would be easy to say, well, yeah, you know, this is good, but you know, I've kind of seen some of this stuff in Goodfellas and Casino. And so I get the idea, but the bottom line is he has just as much a need to establish these characters and their relationships and what they've done uh, and everything like that as he did in those movies. But then he's going to move into this final 90 minutes that to me is what makes it such a rich film is we're going to get past those events and and see what life is like a little bit later on down the line for these folks. And so, uh, you know, the previous movies haven't done that. That just wasn't the story that they were meant to tell. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we, li- we leave, you know, Henry Hill in suburbia uh, eating his, uh, you know, noodles and ketchup that he's <laughs> complaining about uh, when he is probably still younger than – uh, you know, the De Niro and Pesci characters through are through the vast majority of this film. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, we leave off with him when he's still got, you know, most of his life ahead of him. And so we go into to new territory here uh, with watching the people who have gotten into this life, uh, aging in this life. Uh, and it uh, and it becomes, you know, I don't want to give away any any spoilers unless you want to go there. Um uh, you know, and so that's what, uh, what makes this film to me unique. And, uh, and, and honestly, I think the more I see it and the more that I get out of it, I think I would probably will wind up revising that top five list <laughs> that we did, uh, in the last episode. But, you know, it's hard to, to take a film that you've seen a couple of times in the last month and jump it up over something like Raging Bull or some of the movies that you've been living with for 30, 40 years and have seen so many times. And so, uh, but I think with time, uh, you know, uh, this will certainly be in one of the, you know, all-time greats from an all-time great. Uh, I could not agree more. Like, it's, like, the more I've sat on it, the more it's... It, it's a haunting piece of work. Um, I think that one thing that people are kind of saying glibly 
um, which is, is that it, this is, this is a filmmaker looking into the abyss and that fi those, those twilight years. And I think that's true, but I think that that's truer in a way that we could probably never, ever, ever understand until we're at that point. Um, there's a moment in this film that regardless of what you're, what you think of the De Niro character, like when it happens, it's a very simple film and it's, or it's a very simple moment. Um, it's towards the end of the film. And I think you probably already know what I'm talking about. It's one shot and it's De Niro. And it's the moment you see, you see, there's a moment at the end where it becomes apparent there's there's an end coming and it is the one of the most harrowing moments in film that i've seen this year and it keeps on replaying in my mind because it's it speaks to the film itself and what it's trying to say uh and it is. It has. It has. It has no effects. It's just literally a single shot, single medium shot in a house, and what happens in that moment with the with, with the character is just. It's something that you'll never like. You would never see in a studio produced film is the first thing. But then also, secondly, it's. It shows something that we never see in, in films that are about gangsters, which is a complete and utter breakdown of of the masculine uh, like the mochismo of gangsters because at the end age gets us all yeah and yeah oh death yeah is a mistress yeah. that the death is a mistress that meets us all at certain points and, and that moment is so scary to me and and i think that that you hit the 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 nail on the head there with the distinction between death and aging. Yeah. That's where, because that's what the film is showing us throughout the film. When you get those little captions that pop up and say, you know, whoever or another, you know, died, whatever. 19, 1980 was evidently a bad year because most of the people died <laughs> in died, 1980. Yeah. Uh, and it, it says died in 1980, shot five times in the head or something like that. And at first it seems almost like a good fellas, like dark comedy joke. Like the first couple of times they come up, you laugh mm -hmm. at it. You know, some guy comes in, he's like, Hey, can I get you a beer or something? And then they pop up this caption underneath them and says, you know, so-and-so strangled to death in his car on this date. And you kind of laugh at it like, Whoa, wow, that's, that's cold. And then as you start to get them more and more throughout the movie, it, it starts to add up. It starts to stack up and you realize, Holy smoke, you know, most of these people coming in and out out of these guys' lives died, you know, brutally. And so it's not so, so much that, you know, death is a great equalizer. They accept that death is part of their industry. Mm. It, it's the aging, the, the, the great equalizer that, you know, no matter how big of a badass you were at some point in time, if you live long enough, you're eventually going to probably be a little old man with a cane or a walker or something like that. And it's waiting on all of us. Yeah. And, no and that's really, 
Exactly. No matter who you are, no matter how much power you have, no matter how much money you have. And, and so it is, uh, it's much more a, a tale of aging, uh, than a tale of death. All of these movies have been tales of death because people get killed in them all the time. And sometimes over, you know, the smallest little slights or, uh, or things along the way as, uh, as you know, infamously portrayed in the shoe shine box <laughs> sequence of, uh, of Goodfellas. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, so that, that's kind of the, the new territory, uh, to me, you know, I think one of the interesting things, uh, about the Frank Sheeran character is, is he can be such a cipher, you know, I mean, yeah. we, we, we see the things that happen to him. We see how the people around him react, but he always seems to be one of these, just keep your head down, keep plowing through. And so there's an interesting scene. I, I won't give the specifics toward the end, uh, where he's kind of visiting with a priest who visits the nursing home where he stays. And it's, it's a very interesting exchange about the idea of, you know, regretting something or being remorseful about something, uh, you know, and, and it was a very interesting take on that in that discussion, uh, as to, you know, exactly how he sees himself at that point in his life. Very much so. It's almost the key to the second half of the film or like, uh, like to get an understanding of the second half of the film. Um, it's, it's it's some really heady stuff and not what you're expecting. I think that I think what I was initially expecting was something a little bit more like Casino, a little bit more poppy, not this procession march um that that Scorsese and these filmmakers have made, which like Yeah, even the, I, even the music is more subdued. Oh yeah, no definitely. definitely. It's I mean it's not all downbeat, but it's not there's really nothing that is just exuberant and joyous most of it is is kind of contemplative kind of stuff no absolutely it it very much so is it's a very different um crime film i wouldn't even call this a gangster film i'd say it's a crime film it's a very different crime film and he continually um like he has in the past he continues to move up within the corridors of power um this i think is the highest like i think that he's done with the gangster film i mean i'm pretty sure of it the way that it oh, yeah. ends yeah, yeah what he what he has to say and um <clears throat> how different of a film like this movie feels more like uh, akin to silence than it does to casino like i see more in common with those two films um than i do with casino in certain respects thematically but i mean it is definitely a crime film it's just a different kind of crime film i do appreciate the fact that every single one of his films deal with crime in a different uh in a different location like many people would think that all of the films take place in new york but they don't uh goodfellas is like so goodfellas is new jersey uh, New Jersey, New like New Jersey, New York, but mostly New Jersey. Um, Casino is swapped between Kansas City and Las Vegas, and then finally, The Irishman is mostly in Philadelphia with yep. some 
with some moving between Detroit and uh, DC. Um, one of the most interesting things I found about it was is that Scorsese found another angle to bring to um, JFK, RFK, the Bay of Pigs, um, that I yep. don't think is fully had been fully ex- like I thought that it had been fully explored. But watching this and the way that they tie Hoffa to everything, and the way that they tie these guys to this stuff, it's really like it's it is a different angle. Um, like I was expecting a little bit more conspiracy JFK, but it's handled so, I guess, matter of factly, like, like the way that the violence is that I was genuinely shocked. Um, how did you like, were you okay with the fact that they deep dived into something that was very much something that we've all heard about or read about? Yeah, no, I thought it was, uh, uh it was a very interesting angle and a very interesting take on that subject, but it was also kind of unexpected within the movie. And so I thought that, uh, you know, that was part of what kept things interesting is, you know, it, uh, it, it, it was kind of like the, (laughs) the anti Forrest Gump, you know, where they would just kind of insert (laughs) him into historical things, uh, in whatever, you know, crazily implausible way they could, uh, to make use of inserting this character into these photos with famous people and just giving him this just crazy life story. And, and this was like the opposite of that. It was like, you know, you wouldn't realize where you were heading. And then as you realized where you were heading to me, it became more plausible you know, you realized, oh, wow, this this part of history is really enmeshed uh, with these types of characters to an extent that maybe you just didn't quite realize. And so, you yeah. know, true, false, whatever, uh, it certainly plays as true within this reality. And so I thought it it, it worked very well. Yes. No, it, it definitely did. Like, I really enjoyed um I really enjoyed the way that they did approach it. And like you said, it was it was very the anti-Forrest Gump. Um, speaking of which, so we do have to speak a little bit about, about the effects. Now, I'll let you go first and then I'll kind of talk about it on my... So, again, let, let's asterisk mark this. I've heard rumors of they've they spent upwards of $100 million on digital effects. Which, when you see the film, um, if you know anything about about effects work, it's present. You can see. You can see why they spent $100 million. Um, with that being said, uh, how did the de-aging effects work for you? Since it's such a heady topic right now. It, it, at first, it was distracting. Mm-hmm. At, at first, it distracted me. It was, it was kind of like... Because I was looking at them and thinking, now, what age are they supposed to be? Uh, <laughs> yep. Because, like, and, and I'll tell you where it was really glaring was in in the very early on, uh, there's the truck scene. a scene. Yes. The, the truck and, scene. Yes. And, and De Niro breaks down and Pesci comes out and basically is calling De Niro kid. he's he's like he's like hey kid you got some problems there and i'm looking at him and i'm thinking well they both look like they're about 50 
Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. So it's kind of like, A, I would have thought of them as pretty much contemporaries from the way that the de-aging had been done. And then I never thought that De Niro looked, you know, like he was in his 30s or, or, or anything like that or 20s or whatever he supposedly is at that point. So I think what happens is, is it's kind of like in the early days where they're supposed to be much, much younger than they are in real life. I never really felt like they kind of looked it. I never really felt like they, you know, de-aged to that point. They still looked to be like somebody who was 50 uh, trying to pass for somebody who was 35. But, you know, if you bear in mind that these guys are 75 and in Al Pacino's case, almost 80, uh, you know, the to me, the de-aging when they're in their 50s or their 60s and supposed to be those ages, that works better. And so for me, because the majority of the movie is in that zone right there, Mm -hmm. it becomes less of a distraction because we leave behind their quote-unquote younger days kind of quicker. But... uh, but the uh, but that was where I was like, you know, when he comes up, he goes, hey, kid, what seems to be the problem? And I'm like, kid, shit, both y'all look older than I do, you know, <laughs> so, I know. Uh, <laughs> so I was kind of like, well, what the hell are you talking about? But uh, so, yeah, so at times it was kind of implausible and maybe a little bit of a distraction. Uh, but by the same token, you know, I don't know if it would have worked to had kind of semi lookalike casting playing them as younger people and then have their you know 50 year old selves uh take over so i don't know that that would have worked any better uh but uh but i got past it i mean at first it was a little bit of a distraction but uh then uh then i kind of got past it and got into the story to the point that i really didn't notice anymore yeah, and I had a similar I had a similar experience, but I will say this much: um, the worst of it is De Niro's character. Like, like I can approach it from characters. The worst is De Niro. Yeah. the The best is the best is Pacino, but that's just right. because we meet Jimmy Hoffa in his mid or I think the late forties, early fifties. So. Right. The look is there, and then um, the middle ground is Joe Pesci. But the best yep. part about Joe Pesci is is that they don't put him in the old age makeup, or they don't put him in the de-aging too much. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's, it, like you said, it's not as distracting. But the De Niro stuff, especially World War II, and yep. the stuff where he's supposed to be baptizing his kid, and he's supposed to be less than 40, I'm like... Whoa, guys! <laughs> yeah, you World need- War Two. The World War Two part was kind of like, damn, they must have been desperate drafting people <laughs> your age. Exactly. Uh, you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you know, and the funny thing is, is that might be the one scene that I'm like, why did they even need it? Yeah, they did. I mean, because because when I saw the, you know, I mean, because there was a screenshot going around for a while yes. of uh, of uh, you know World War Two age uh, Frank Sheeran. 
and uh, and so I thought that that was going to be like a part of the movie, like it was going to be you know maybe part war movie at the beginning yes. that we were going to see uh, some of his days in the army, and instead it's kind of like a toss off flashback. Uh, kind of thing that, you know, that part of it lasts probably less than 60 seconds. And so you have to ask yourself, since it doesn't work any better than that, I wonder why they felt like they needed to to use it. Two words. Final motherfucking cut. <laughs> <laughs> and Scorsese says he wanted all the fucking yeah. 200 scenes he, he filmed. Yeah. Um, yep. The one thing that we didn't talk about that I want to talk about really quickly is... Fuck, I had no idea I missed Joe Pesci oh, man. in great so, Joe Pesci roles. Fuck. He's so he, good. He's so fucking good in this movie. Like, yep. eclipse everybody. Like he And really... so un-Joe Pesci from what you're used to yes. in these. I mean, it was. It, it's almost like a casting against type within <sighs> a gangster movie. Exactly. Because you're you're so used to him playing this frenetic, hothead, uh, you know, the guy who's just talking eleven miles a minute and all of this. And in this movie, he's just so quiet and such this, you know, kind of quietly powerful person, this this soft spoken, underspoken uh kind of person. And so, you know, obvious I mean, my feeling is is I mean that's the real Joe Pesci I'm imagining. Yeah. And and so Scorsese probably thought, you know, just he as is would be perfect for a part like this because clearly the others, you know, are performances. He's he's taking on a, a character. Uh but this just kind of quiet, assured uh kind of character that he plays. But it's such a revelation because we haven't seen him that way. I mean, even the goofy movies, Home Alone yeah. and stuff like that, you know, he's always the yep, 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 you know, the whole, you know, just kind of frenetic kind of thing. And so yeah, his his performance in this movie just knocked me out. Yeah. I I really I looked at it and I went, there's your there's your best supporting actor for Oscars. Like, and it's a yep. bookend. But who do you perfect. think will actually win it out of that movie? It'll be him. It has to be him. Like, like as much as I like Pacino's performance because it's so it's so within his wheelhouse, but not because everything is a little bit more subdued. I loved that about about um, Scorsese's direction of of Pacino was that. For once, we got a Pacino performance where I thought he was going to go super arch and super over mm-hmm, the top. Mm-hmm. And it's he takes that, like Scorsese takes that energy and turns it into paranoia and anxiety in Jimmy in a well, way. And, oh, go ahead. Yeah, and I, I think what he also does is everybody who is like a public figure especially mm-hmm. a leader of somebody like a union or the Teamsters or what have you, yeah. is going to have a big persona that they pull out when they need it. Yeah. And so I think that's where Pacino's performance works so well, is I've never been a big fan of his, you know, hoo-wah, you know, big mm-hmm. – 
before I think it's a disgrace that that's the film that he won an Oscar, the Oscar for. for. Yeah. I mean, between The Godfather, Godfather 2, Serpico, Dog Day Afternoon. I mean, I would even take Scarface, which is a little bit on the hammy side with the accent mm-hmm. and all of that. I would take any of those over Sin of a Woman. I've never been a fan of that movie. I've never been a fan of that performance. And that's kind of my line of demarcation most of the time in his career of what interests me and what doesn't. Uh, But I think he does a great job of saying, you know, Hoffa had this big kind of bombastic personality side to him, this larger than life figure. And so Pacino's performance is a blend of that. He can be quiet and normal and whatnot behind the scenes, like, you know, the scene at the bowling alley or any of the times that, you know, the families are together just hanging out. But then if he gets in a group and starts getting that thing going that he does, you know, (laughs) and, and all that, but it's fitting because he's slipping into that persona of, I've got to take control. I've got to be the guy. And the guy needs to seem larger than life. And so it's actually a perfect, what it is, it's it's a perfect example of casting. Yep. To to say, I want, to say, I want Pacino to be in my movie, but then finding the role that best fits that style of acting so that they serve each other. And so uh, I think that's why it works. No, it absolutely, it absolutely a hundred percent does. It's, He's like like between him and uh, him and Pesci, it has to be Pesci. Like Pesci is just a revelation. Like to take the gangster movie and make Joe Pesci a revelation within the fucking gangster movie is saying a lot about yep. that. Because yep. I mean, quite frankly, Joe Pesci's performance in Goodfellas was probably the best and the worst fucking thing to happen to gangster films. Like, it's both equally the best because it shows such a nuisanced performance by somebody who's playing a psychopath. But it also becomes <laughs> right. this whole thing of where all the fucking assholes that decide that they want to play like a psychopath gangster take the you think I'm funny, but don't take anything else from the fucking performance. Um, so it's pesci for me. But then you've got these great dark horse like performers that come out and just you're like how the fuck did they do like Stephen Graham playing Tony Pro I was I was going to say we have the usual Pesci style character uh in this movie but is played in that part Yeah by Stephen Graham an Englishman Yeah a, he's a awesome very, a very heavy like a like he's English in the way that like Jason Statham is English and even played uh, like, you know, played his uh, Al Capone. Huh? He played Al Capone. Yeah. That's oh, that's right. I completely fucking. Yeah, he was Al Capone on uh, Boardwalk Empire. Yeah, Boardwalk. Well, and then they're like, I mean, Bobby Connervile, Jack Houston, um, Steve Van Zant, all people who worked with Scorsese. um, Oh, and uh, okay, so my favorite of everybody that showed up. Because it was so against type, Ray fucking Romano. <laughs> He's awesome. Uh, and, did you ever watch Men of a Certain Age? Yes, I did. Because that, that, of that was, Andre Brower. Yeah, yeah, me too. That was why I started watching that show. Yeah. Uh, but Ray Romano just proved to you that really he can pretty much do anything. 
after I saw that show. I mean, he was just so effortless at drama uh, that then some of the movies that he's appeared in since, uh, it's not a bit of a surprise to me having seen that show. If you hadn't seen that show, you might still be going, wow, man, I can't believe that, you know, Ray Romano, stand-up comedian, and everybody loves Raymond and all that kind of stuff, uh, was in this movie. And so that's always my question is, well, did you see Men of a Certain Age? Uh, because if you saw that show where he's playing this guy with a failing business who's got a gambling problem, I mean, you know, trying to get past, you know, marital issues and move on with his life and all of that kind of stuff, uh, it was it was a very heavy kind of performance, and, and he was a knockout. He definitely was. And I'm glad that, like, through vinyl and like uh, yep. get I'd, I'd forgotten about that that was yep. where scorsese found him for this movie basically exactly and like you know people that were making the ray, Mar- uh, ray romano jokes fuck you guys watch him in this and watch him peacock with the costume designer in a way that makes him like at a certain point like a visual gag but it oh, the, works the slow-mo shot <laughs> yes you know what i'm fucking yeah, talking awesome. about yeah like, that's awesome but, but he just comes out like the biggest peacock in the world and he fucking knows yep. it and he doesn't care. And it's like yep. this grand moment. Um, yep. It's almost. But it's as... a setting where he can be a peacock. So. Exactly. No, it definitely is. Like when it's you his see moment. It, 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 it absolutely is. But I mean, then there's the moments between him, Pesci and De Niro when 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 Bill, the character he's playing, Bill like basically hooks him up, sets him up with, uh, with Russell and mm-hmm. the way he plays off of Pesci and De Niro is the way that you expect Harvey Keitel to play off of him, to play off of them, which right. he does. Right. But to he to see it from Ray Romano is such a joy. It like, it made me want to slow clap after that moment because he kills it. He does it exactly yeah. the yeah, way he does. The way that a guy like um, another guy who's in here that uh, like, you know, like another character actor, uh, Paul Ben Victor, who always plays the, you know, the 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 Italian gangster in anything that he's in. But he's dealt with these guys. And part of I think the reason that he's cast along with somebody like Steve Van Zant, who, you know, come on, we got to appreciate Steve Van Zant. I mean, you know, from E Street Band to to gangster, you got to you got to love it. But um Ben Paul Victor. Yep. I mean, like all these guys, they they know how they know that language. They know the comfortable right. ability that they have to be with those guys. And Romano fits in like a puzzle piece that we've never. Well, you know, the one thing that I've I've always been a believer of when it comes to the stand up comedy guys mm-hmm. is, you know, you think of 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 keeping company like Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, Martin Scorsese's directing you. You would think that anybody would just be intimidated. But if your life began standing on a stage behind a microphone (laughs) in front of hundreds of people, if not thousands of people that you're supposed to make laugh, I don't know that anything gets more intimidating than that. (laughs) No. And so I think you find sometimes that these veteran stand-ups who wind up turning in really good dramatic performances and people are like, wow, I can't believe that they were just, you know, so confident doing that. I'm like, if you've got the balls to get up in front of a bunch of people and do a stand-up act and potentially, you know, run the risk of bombing in front of them on any given night, 
you're probably not too intimidated by much of anything else after that. <laughs> no, absolutely. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, uh, in the, in the legal world, you know, the guys who do the death penalty cases and all that kind of stuff, you know, uh, give them a, 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 a shoplifting case or a car theft case. And, you know, they could take a nap during one of those things compared to the high stakes of that other kind of work. So <laughs> it's like if, 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 if your career was, uh, you know, trying to make people laugh for a living, who are just sitting there staring you down and who knows what kind of mood they're in and all that kind of stuff. Then, uh, you know, there may have been a moment of, you know, pinch me. I can't believe I'm working with these people. Uh, but I doubt that he, uh, gets intimidated by much. I, I think that you're a hundred percent right about that, <laughs> but it's still like, it, it has to be like, he has to be shouted out. Like I, I'm the, just, the way that he comes in like a champ and he does what he's supposed to do um, in the same way that like that Graham, Stephen Graham comes in and goes toe to toe with Al Pacino. And in a moment like the their fight, like their their actual fight is pretty amazing. Um, one thing I was going to ask. Oh, you, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was it, it was the, that scene uh, where I guess are they meeting in Miami? Yeah, they're meeting at Miami. Yeah, and he shows and, up in and, the and, shorts, <laughs> and he's late. Yeah, yeah. I have to tell you, when he showed up in the shorts, uh, all I could think of was the Sopranos cookout scene, oh, where where yes. one of the one of the guys in the family basically tells him that you know a don, you know anybody who's in charge uh, does not wear short pants. Yeah, that's and right. uh, and so I remember they were getting on Tony about that in the Sopranos, and so when Stephen Graham. Uh, comes waltzing in into that uh, little cafe or whatever in Miami, uh, wearing shorts or whatever. I thought, uh oh, <laughs> here, here it comes. But yeah, um, that that was an incredibly tense, and he uh, he held his own uh, with Al and uh, and uh, Robert uh, De Niro sitting there uh, staring him down. So it, it is is an impressive performance too. Yeah. Um... I mean, I can't say anything more other than to, like for people to really, really take the time. And here's the biggest thing for me, and and then I'll let you I'll let you see if you agree with me um, and talk more about this. But um, watch it in one sitting. Don't yes commit yes. the time. Um, yes, like, even even people with kids. I know that you you're gonna say that you don't have three and a half hour time to watch a Scorsese gangster epic. You do. You just gotta find it. I mean, you know, nine o'clock at night to one thirty or twelve thirty at night, your kids are gone. You you can watch it. <laughs> like, make the commitment because I feel that this movie is not a mini series. It's not a Netflix yeah, no. series. It's yeah. It's not even a Netflix film. It's a fucking Scorsese film, and it does deserve its due justice. Yeah, I uh I like I said I was fortunate enough to, you know, see it in a theater at a critic screening and so it forced it on me uh to see it all in 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 one sitting. And uh believe it or not, uh you know, a 50-year-old dude who takes blood pressure medication which makes you have to go to the bathroom. Uh I I sat there for three and a half hours and didn't move. I didn't get up and go to the bathroom. I didn't go get anything to drink. I mean, I was riveted by it. Uh, it didn't feel the length to me. It didn't play long or any of those expressions that people will use about long films. 
you know, uh, I was mesmerized by it. Uh, but I think it works better because it does truly develop this rhythm. And I think if you, you know, watch the first couple of hours and say, okay, I'll pause it and see the rest of this later that then when that third act hits, and, and the, you know, the, the tone is different than what you might've expected out of the movie and everything in a way, it's almost going to feel like two separate films. You know, it's, it's, it's going to have some kind of, uh, I think a different, uh, effect for you. And so, uh, to watch it kind of slowly turn into where it's headed at the end, uh, is, is really, you know, something to behold. And so I'm with you. That was even in my uh, brief little uh, video review uh, that I did. I made sure to point out, I was like, look, you know, y'all can chain smoke episodes of a television series, you know, back when House of Cards was popular mm-hmm. uh, and it would drop a new season. You know, people watch the whole thing in a weekend. And yeah. so I'm like, if you didn't watch, you know, three, three or four episodes of a show back to back, then you can certainly watch this film uh, in in one sitting. And so uh, if at all possible, uh, that is the way that I would do it because I think it's the most rewarding that way. I could not agree with you more. Um, and with that, um, uh, maybe in 20 years we'll pick up and and re, reassoci- uh, reassess uh, The Irishman. <laughs> but right there now... There you go. We'll, we'll do exactly. another... Uh, uh, top uh top 10 or top five and by then i'll need de-aging <laughs> i'll need fucking de-aging too um but right now it's all to say um you have like if you have netflix you have it in your queue do yourself a favor s- schedule out some time uh, with marty and the guys because i don't think that you guys are going to be disappointed uh with this uh, it may not be what you wanted from him but it's still all the same, a powerful, powerful film that demands to be seen. And it's the only problem is, is that it's not in the theaters. Like it's not in, it's not in every single theater so that everybody can go see it. But I think that it would have never been made for that kind of consumption in the way that it's made. And it's a beautiful film. Um, yeah. Yeah. Nobody wanted to take the gamble. That was the thing. No. They, they didn't want they didn't want to spend $160 million on a movie that then they think doesn't meet the technical uh, requirements for the de-aging and wind up with something that they didn't think they could sell in theaters. So that's why most traditional uh, production companies passed on it. Absolutely. And um, let's just, I'm going to say, I wish Marty well on, on this award season. Um, it would be great if it cleaned up, uh, for him and his cast, uh, because they definitely, this was definitely a passion project. Um, uh, it definitely was. You can just tell by the work, uh, with that, uh, Scott, where can people find you, uh, on the interwebs and social media? Yeah, absolutely. I think that you uh, introduced me at the beginning of the episode as a writer for Film Dispenser, and so I actually kind of had to shit. smile because because <laughs> that was that was my former outlet. My my yes. current editor uh, loves me so much he forgets that I write for his site, The Movie Dial. <laughs> uh, but uh, but I'll take it because I enjoyed my years at Film Dispenser, and it was a great site. Uh, so I write uh, uh, at The Movie Dial, and uh, then also I have a uh, series of video reviews that I do uh, that can be found at wrbl.com that's a CBS affiliate from here in Georgia 
Uh, and uh, so the name of the show is The Screen Scene. Uh, so if you go to WRBL.com and search Screen Scene, you will find my work for them. Uh, and then if you'd like to find me on Twitter, uh, as I always used to say when I was on podcast more regularly, uh, you typically will not find cute little pictures of my animals or what I had for dinner or anything like that. Uh, my Twitter feed is usually purely film-related, and so it is mscott underscore Phillips. And uh, you can find links to all of my work there, as well as uh, information about film festivals, links to other critics that I enjoy, uh, just all kinds of film-related stuff. All right, guys, you can find The Movie Isle on Twitter and Instagram. The handle is um, the B-Movie Pod. Uh, it's the letter B, the word... Uh, no, it's actually just B-Movie Pod, not the B-Movie uh, Wait, let's just start this all over again, guys. I'm going to keep this. I'm not going to fucking edit this shit out because it's funny. <laughs> okay, so social media uh, for the uh, the B-Movie podcast is BM, uh, the, wait. let's start this all over again, guys. Let's go ahead and do this right the right way by just looking at my handles. So Twitter and Instagram, B-Movie pod is the letter B, the word movie, the word pod. Altogether, no lines, no dashes, no bullshit. That's both Twitter and Instagram. The Movie Isles handles um, on Twitter and Instagram are the same, or not the same, but they're the same for each one, which is the Movie uh, the movie Isle. Altogether, no lines, no dashes, no bullshit. Um, Scott is going to go ahead and he's going to buckle up and be with us for the rest of the season this year. Uh, we've got some great things planned. We're actually, as I mentioned on the first episode, we're doing filmmaker centric podcasts. They might be one episode. They might be two episodes. It all depends on on how loquacious both me and Scott are. And as you can tell, we're very fucking loquacious. Um Guys, get prepared because the next episode or episodes is um, on a director that me and both me and Scott agree is a great director. And he's come up this year. Uh, and that's part of the reason why uh, we're going to be talking about Bong Joon-ho, um, the great director of 2019's Parasite and a host of other films that you're going to. And that was a fucking pun. And it was intended. For Bada boom. I heard it. <laughs> Bada bing. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> coming up in the next in the next week or two. Uh, so get your uh, Bang Ho hive uh, watching in. And we will be back uh, in probably about a week or so uh, with those episodes. So until next time, talk to you soon.